episode 11 with Frank Mills. Uh, we're out on tour uh, with Frank on the west coast of Canada. We had a night off, so we decided to do a podcast. I had a ton of fun. Uh, Frank is a fantastic guy, and I've uh, been uh, working with Frank for a few years, and I've known him for a long time. And uh, such a great entertainer, great piano player, great writer. Of course, he's written one of the most recognizable instrumentals in the world. Um, it's unbelievable everything he's done in his career. So excited for you to listen to this. Here we go. Okay, I'm here with Frank Mills, and we're in Olds, Alberta, which is just north of Calgary. And uh, this is our day off on the tour. And Frank graciously decided that he'd come up and uh, we'd hang out and chat for a while on this podcast and find out a little bit more than most people know about Frank Mills. There you go. <laughs> Here he is in old. Yeah. <laughs> with Darren. <laughs> it was a good, nice little drive today. It's a little chilly. It uh, is. Blay. It's uh, gray, yeah. Gray and wintry looking out there, but we're, we're here. We're, yeah. We're having fun. So, Frank, uh, I know, did you, you were born in Montreal? I was born in Montreal, yeah. lived in, in uh, born in Verdun, which was a, a sort of a, a central suburb <laughs> down there in the, by the water. Yeah. And uh, at five years of age, we moved to Mount Royal, which was, I guess, in my parents' view, um, a step up. Yeah. Um, my dad's business started to do well, and uh, as a kid at Mount Royal, Mount Royal was really a relatively new town. Yeah. Uh, it was a once called Model City, and then they decided that was a bit arrogant, <laughs> so they changed it to the town of Mount Royal. But it was an ideal place to grow up in as as a kid. I mean, I, I first of all, I had everything I could ask for in terms of bicycles and whatever you know. And, yeah. And, and the kids around the block also had the same thing. There, there, it was a, just a, a post-war community of men who decided they wanted to work hard and make a little extra money. So yeah. they also drank too hard usually and, and ate too much. Well, but uh, so the, they died doesn't? young. They died young, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So any other brothers and sisters? I have a sister, Kathleen. She's four years older than me. Yeah. Lives in Peterborough now. She's oh, okay. In her retirement, her husband and her both retired and. Uh, they like Peterborough. Nice, nice little city. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you started playing piano pretty young, right? Yeah, really uh, voluntarily, Darren. I, I, I just gravitated to it. I, I, it was in me. There's no doubt there was yeah. some genetic thing in there. I don't know what it was, but uh, I certainly loved playing piano. I never had to really be pushed into it. I was just as happy to be practicing piano as I would have been and often did playing soccer outside in the on the street or, or yeah. you know, hockey or what, what, what would you call it? Street hockey? Yeah. <laughs> you wonder, um, this conversation comes up all the time, you wonder now if you were in today's era, uh, whether, you know, the, all the distractions nowadays with the internet and your mm -hmm. iPads and all that mm -hmm. stuff, you wonder how many kids get a little dra distracted from that. Uh, but I think if you have a strong... Um, angst to want to do something you do it yeah and i think it, if anything the options have increased you have yeah. much more choice in today's world which i think is a good thing yeah it can be frustrating it leads to long lines at starbucks and stuff yeah. like that but 
I think eventually I would have gravitated to music anyway. Yeah. So there was something there, some latent. You know, my all of my uncles and aunts on my mother's side were musical. They all okay, played an yeah. instrument. So we, with a family band, they tell me they had. Yeah. And my dad's uh, side were more the Irish type of singers in the pub, you know, yeah. <laughs> well aided and abetted by a few belts. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but uh, the family home was full of music. My dad loved classical music, and subsequently I gravitated toward that too. Yeah. And, uh, I'm Did a, you start with lessons? Uh, I started away? with piano lessons when I was seven. That mm-hmm. seemed to be in Quebec, that was sort of the the guideline age to uh, you're either too young to absorb it or too old to, to to too late to get into it so seven was the the mean average i guess which i think was late yeah uh, i could have started at four yeah i was that musical although we didn't have much of a piano when i was four and that too improved when we moved to town of mount royal <laughs> do you remember your first day of lessons very well yeah, yeah mrs g she was a nice lady and i went to her house on my bike yeah in those days, you could go anywhere on a bike and never even think twice about it. There was yeah. no question of crime or, or getting mobbed or anything else. It, it just it was a very safe community to live in. And uh, so we walked all over the place. I walked to high school every day. That was half a mile in each direction. So, yeah. And I spent lots of time uh, in the evenings with uh, band was Wednesday night. Seven o'clock till eight o'clock, and we walked to school again and yeah. and played with band practice. Uh, I took up trombone when I was twelve, okay, yeah, and, and loved it. It was a great instrument as a songwriter in particular, or even as a composer of music. It was, uh, it's an instrument much like the violin that's played without uh, there are no stops, you know, yeah. and so uh, tra- training the ear was really a great way to go with trombone yeah it is because you have to be right on the money mm-hmm. or right off the money <laughs> yeah well it's all here too you know it's yeah, guiding you sure. yeah your stops are limited to your ears so, so how long did you take mrs g you said it was you know? mrs g mm-hmm. and i were good friends until i was about 10 yeah. and she sort of said to me you know uh, i think you're ready for some higher learning in piano yeah and she put me on to a guy named uh, Martin Lewis. He was a French teacher of music at the University of Montreal. Okay. And he took me the next step into the classics. And I remember studying a lot of Chopin and um, a lot of the great classics that uh, were written for piano. Of course, piano was probably one of the first instruments to be around that played all the notes of the orchestra, you know, yeah. the, the wide range of the piano and the keyboard. So I gravitated to that in, in, in a peaceful transition. I liked him. He was a great teacher. Uh, man, he could play, too. He knew his stuff. And so um, he was great about allowing me to choose my repertoire that I wanted to play. I always remember Fantasy Impromptu was one of my favorite Chopin pieces. And, and he said, well, have you played through it or have you looked through it before you want to start learning it? And I said, no. And he said, well, the second movement is it's tough. He said, oh, yeah. you're biting off something I don't think you're ready for. And I said, well, that's fine. We've got a few years to, to fix it, don't we? He said, oh, yeah, go ahead. So uh, I was able to play that first part of it, and then it goes into a very rapid, a uh, lot of chord changes and, and some fancy finger work that I think it took me about three years. And we sort of put that on the side while I was learning other stuff for my technique. Yeah, I'd come and back to it every once in a while. Came back to it every once in a while, yeah. and he was quite right. And after about the third year, I used to play it flawlessly, and he was very proud of that. So it well, was I th- great. I think it's good to, uh, I, I know when I was learning um, different instruments that I would always pick something that I knew I couldn't play. I knew it was well. But 
you worked at it. It gave you something to to really push towards. Yes. And I think when you just kind of gradually step by step, that can be a little monotonous. But if you have something that you're hoping to achieve and yes. uh, really go for it, it really pushes you along. I think. Yeah, I, I think it's good mental exercise too. Yeah. You know, and your brain, of course, at that age, is very absorbent. And uh, I just loved it. I, it was very fine for me. And then when I went into high school, um, he retired, I think, from the school thing and secretly wanted to give up teaching. And I felt, well, that's fine. I'll take up trombone seriously now in grade eight, I guess I was, in Quebec, in yeah. 12 years of age. And uh, I studied trombone with uh, several other instructors for four years. Wow. Played in high school, the, the band. There was a high school orchestra I played in that. Then we had our own little jazz band. Yeah. And that was three nights a week by, by the time I was finished. So came Friday came along. I was looking for a holiday. I bet. And then we'd play in, the, in our own little dance band that we had at school, you know, which was really fun for sock hops and stuff. And, yeah. uh, and that was great training, of course, for the future. It's great. I mean, unfortunately now, uh, I think a lot of high schools have, don't have the music programs like they used to. And I look back very fondly on those music programs. And I know when I went to high school, too, we had the orchestra and we had a jazz band and a stage band yeah, and a vocal exactly. yep. you know, group. And that was really important years, I think. I mean, it really, not only musically, you were, you, I don't think you realized what you were learning musically um, at that time. Uh, for me, I didn't. It was fun. But you were still really learning different elements of, of music, even though it wasn't all classical or there's some pop, there was a little bit of this, and you got a real taste of a little bit of everything. I think also that music, um, it wasn't obvious in the beginning, but as my family history evolved, it was certainly very important to me emotionally. Yeah. It was an outlet for my teenage emotions, yeah. uh, which were developing at the time, for better or worse, in our case, in the family. but. Um, I think that was an, an important part of music for me in my life. And uh, also, well, there have been studies made very obviously, kids who go into music, their marks are better. Now, I don't, I don't know why. Or the, the, there are the reasons shown by psychologists, but yeah. uh, that seems to be a fact these days. And I have to say that all of the kids I remember being in the band have done very well, yeah. uh, whether you can correlate it or not. I don't know. But yeah. the, Mount Royal in its own self was a, a community that offered endless opportunities for kids. Absolutely endless. You could do whatever you wanted. And they had. I remember the Camera Club. Camera Club. We had a, a very uh, nice uh, dark room set up, you know, oh, yeah. to develop pictures and yeah. Cameras that were really quite exceptional. They were all donated by different companies. So I was in the camera club, and then I was in the ski club. That too. Uh, gosh, at one point in time, we were taking eight buses every Saturday to the Laurentian Mountains and oh, back yeah. for a ski day for four bucks. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was another opportunity. And between that, the camera club, the music, uh, the ski club, and uh, all my musical events during the week, my, my noon hours and evenings were filled. Yeah. From Monday to Friday. You didn't have time to get into trouble. Didn't or... have time. No, not at all. No. And it was fun. I mean, it was. Yeah. there was a spirit between everybody involved yeah. that was positive. And I think, uh, I think that played a large role in our development for years later on when y you still have all those choices to make, but you gravitate to people who share the same interests. Yeah. And that's important, I think, for uh, our uh, the development of our... our um, 
confidence mm-hmm. and uh, the ability to just take other people for what they are and, and to realize that we're different, you know, and, and respect that. Yeah, exactly. If you didn't want to play the trombone, fine, play the oboe. You yeah. know. So at that time, what? Um, obviously, you had a strong interest in classical, but what were you listening to other music-wise besides that? <laughs> well, I, was, I would practice my 20 minutes of a supposed hour every day. Uh, I would practice playing my classical stuff and program that uh, Dr. Lewis had given to me, and, and I'd practice that for 20 minutes, and then inevitably it burst into Heartbreak Hotel and Blueberry Hill and Fats yeah. Domino and Ray Charles and all the great, uh, the Everly Brothers, they were all, all big hits of the 60s or 50s and 60s. Yeah. And then the Beatles, of course. So I was always playing pop music. Yeah. And I think I learned even then at a young age that probably when I was around 10, I realized people like to listen to me play the piano. And it wasn't in the ordinary sense. Mm-hmm. There was something there that I, I knew they were enjoying it. Uh, and then, of course, it became obvious at McGill when I was practicing piano for my composition class. And um, there were eight uh, rehearsal studios on the second floor of the music faculty. And you, you would be assigned that you'd work out your schedule every week and you would either be there at two o'clock every afternoon or whatever time you wanted, but you'd reserve that room for that hour. And I always used to get a kick out of it because once again, I'd be rehearsing the pieces I was supposed to play for the curriculum. Yeah. Then I'd burst into Ray Charles again, or, or you know, at that time, um, gosh, uh, the House of the Rising Sun, the animals and yeah. all that stuff. And when my, but when my class was finished or, or my, my hour went by, I'd open the door and all the young secretaries from the office were outside the door listening to me play all this <laughs> pop music. Yeah. They didn't give a damn about the classical stuff either, you yeah. know. Uh, so I knew then, in a sad sense, because the, I'll never forget Richard Gresco, a nice guy and, and really good friend in the music faculty. And Richard practiced piano in the, the studio next to me and he could play circles around me. He was in the uh, concert piano training class to be a concert pianist, and he could play circles around me, but unfortunately his repertoire was, you know, Stravinsky and all sorts of really difficult stuff to play, and I was sticking to the nice melodies of Chopin and Ray Charles. <laughs> so Yeah, we're pl- you're probably it, just playing over people's heads and just didn't... It didn't realize, I didn't yeah. do it on purpose. Yeah. It was my choice. You yeah. know, I just did it that way. It was me. And that got me into more clubs and, and situations that have been beneficial for the rest of my life. Why, why did I get into the Trout Club? Oh, because he could play the piano. You know? yeah. And there was a lineup of 20 people waiting to get in. No, we need the piano player, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that opened a lot of doors that way. So when you, when you finished high school, to zipping back a bit, um, you wanted to be a doctor, right? Well, by the time I finished high school, both my parents had died of cancer. Mm-hmm which was really a knock. I, I, here I had this idyllic living situation, a comfy little bedroom of my own with whatever I wanted, the bicycles. I remember my first BSA British bike, you know, yeah. this, wow, this was hot, you know, and I got that, I think, when I was about 16 years old, 15 years old. And then my folks died, and the whole thing turned upside down. I, I really uh, had a difficult time, and that was just before I started college. I spent one year at McGill while my mother was alive and she died that Christmas. So in my first year of college. So, uh, and I I was in, yeah, I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, 
I guess I was influenced a lot because by the time I was 10 years old, I, I, I didn't think they were dying. No child ever thinks his parents are dying, but I knew they were sick. Yeah. And, and, and in that sense, I, I kind of realized, well, I'm going to have to start taking a lot of responsibility for myself if I want to do something. I've got, I've got to do it. I can't ask them to do it. They were really, you know, not well. And yeah. my dad in particular suffered immensely with it. And so I guess by the time I was 18, when mom died, my sister moved into the family home uh, for a year. And then she started having babies every year. And I was in college and I thought, you know, I think I'll just join a fraternity down there and live there. Yeah. Which was a, a great bonus for me. Um, there's a lot of negative publicity about fraternities, and I suppose we had our moments too as young men at college, you yeah. know, and, and young women at college. But uh, I think McGill was great for me because, first of all, I was surrounded by guys who were very supportive of each other. And also, uh, I guess I ran into to other their parents and, and, and whatnot who took me under their wing for a short period of time, all of them. There were several sure. different families I bumped into and bumped out of and went on to another one. And yeah. and that helped me through what I call the, the years of intense depression that I, I fell into. Uh, I'm sure you did. After, yeah, yeah. And, and it was tough. So that's really the reason why my marks went down at McGill. And I really, I, I got kicked out. I flunked and, and uh, you're only allowed to flunk once there. And, and I remember the dean called me and he said, I hate to tell you this because I think you'd make a good doctor, but he said, you're out. You, you, you can't handle the uh, scholastic curriculum to become yeah. a doctor. And I found that hard to accept because I thought, I mean, I'd always have top marks in high school and they weren't, it wasn't hard to achieve, you yeah, know? And all of a sudden somebody's looking at me straight in the face and said, well, you failed three exams. Um, I have no choice, but you gotta go. So, and then the irony that happened was when I quit, or got, got booted out is more like it. I was walking down past the music uh, faculty and uh, the building there on McTavish Street in downtown Montreal, which was part of the McGill campus. And uh, there was the music faculty. And I thought, hmm. And none other than Bill Walker, who had played in the high school band, came out the door and walked down the stairs. I hadn't seen him for three years. Wow. And Bill said, to, he used to call me Rack because I always jazzed up Rack Maninoff and he loved it. He'd sort of stand at the piano and sing. He had a great voice and we'd, yeah. we'd, he'd croon while I sang. This is in high school, you know? So mm -hmm. Bill and I became great friends and he said, well, what's happening? Where are you going? I said, I think I'm gonna go and join the Navy. I just wanna get out of here. And he said, you can't do that. Come up and take the music entrance exam. And I thought, well, I got nothing to lose. So half an hour later, the dean of the music faculty is phoning the dean who just threw me out of college. And he says, <laughs> this guy Mill's pretty talented. We'd like to have him in the music faculty. So Stansbury, I could hear the conversation over the phone. Stansbury said, well, it's okay, but don't blame me if it doesn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I got into music. <laughs> so, and the, the, the two years I spent in music at McGill were all about songwriting and composition. I was not in there to become a concert pianist. Yeah. I was not there to become a school teacher of music. I was there for the simple reason of to learn how to write music. And yeah. uh, it was so beneficial. The two years, there were only two guys in my class. Myself and Hugh Hartwell, and wow. don't know what happened to Hugh, yeah. but uh, we studied composition for two years together in that class with Dr. Anhalt. I remember him very well. Very inspiring teacher. Yeah. And uh, once again, fate had put me in a, a situation where I was 
with some of the best to work with, and I, and I realized it and took advantage of it. Well, I'm sure it was a great, you know, considering your parents passing and that, and then you're in a course that you're you're writing music and composing that you had a lot to pour out. Um, exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. and yeah, that probably yeah. was very. Yeah, and helpful for you to to be in that course. R- R- yeah, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, and I became the best of buddies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a pretty deep thing, you know. Yeah, beautiful melodies, but uh, piano wise, there's some amazing passages in it. You got to be pretty good to play it. And yeah. So you finished up uh, with McGill. Yeah. Know, where did that find you at that point? Strangely enough, well, it found me um, wrestling with some complexes that I was beginning to develop, mm-hmm. um, some serious mental handicaps um, neurosis is a strange thing I still I studied it with a psychiatrist for six months but not until I was about 40 I didn't think there was anything wrong with me until then and then I realized that every time I had an extra couple of beers I, I turned into a different guy altogether oh, yeah. you know it was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation and I thought this is going to land me in trouble someday if I don't fix it yeah so luckily, over the years, I realized I had read a lot of books about it. I talked to a lot of different uh, people in psychiatry and psychology about it. And not until I was about 40 years of age did I end up with a, a psychiatrist in the Bahamas, of all places, who was a wonderful guy and set me straight. But there were all those years after I left music um, at McGill. was 65 when I left. Yeah. And uh, I, I, my father had always been very supportive of me in any respect, but I think out of his desire to protect me, or at least guide me, he said to me one day, your music is wonderful, you'd probably like to go into it for the rest of your life, but he said, I'm not so sure you'll make the kind of money you'd want to have in the business to allow yourself the freedoms we have now. Yeah. He was talking blatant money here. This was all about money, which has never turned me on. And at the same time, he would say, well, make sure that whatever you do in life, you like it. Because there's nothing, you know, work becomes play when you look forward to going to work every day. Exactly. And that's what happened when I really took music seriously. So four years later, after McGill, and two jobs in, in, in industry... What were you doing? <laughs> well, I was a salesman for Union Carbide Industrial Welding and Gas Supplies. <laughs> I mean, you know, here's piano playing Frank. And even there, I got a reputation, at, you know, playing at Christmas parties for the company yeah. and various parties that were held. Oh, is Mills coming? Yeah, okay, Mills is coming. Well, good. We'll have some fun there. and He'll play the piano. That happened for two years with Union Carbide. And interestingly, my boss said to me, you know, I know you want to make some money, he said. I, I think you'd really like to go into music. You've said that a few times. And he said, I know you want to make some money just to give yourself time to, to go into music and, and not have to worry about money for a year or two, yeah. which was true. And I said, yes. And he was really very kind to me and open-minded and very paternal. And he said to me, why don't you go into industrial real estate? He said, you're a good salesman. You can make a lot of money there if you work hard. Yeah. And then you can do what you want to do. So I was there at A.E. LePage Industrial Real Estate for two years. Wow. I made a fortune as a young man mm-hmm. and uh, certainly had enough money to buy a nice grand piano, live in a decent apartment, yeah. and not run out of money for a year. Is that still Montreal? The apartment, you mean? You no, know, where you're working in. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, they're still, still in Montreal. Montreal. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. And, and he was uh, the, the boss of, at LePage, Lauren Cook, was a nice man, too. 
I, I guess my, one of the um, constant uh, inputs in my life has been that for whatever reason, I run into some really nice people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the old expression, I guess, is not what you know, but who you know, has repaid itself many times. And uh, I've just been very fortunate. I, I've met these great people who sort of took me under their wing and took me in confidence. It was I found it unusual that A, that Paul... Uh, Dawson, my boss at Union Carbide, would say to me, you know, I know you want to go into music. You're not going to make enough money here to do what you want to do. Why don't you go into industrial real estate? Mm-hmm. That, that, to me, really astonished me at how honest these people were. Yeah. And Lauren Cook was the same way. When I said, Lauren, I've, made, I've been with you for two years, and I'd like to uh, leave and go into music full-time. And he looked at me as if I were crazy. He said, he said you're our best salesman. You, you'll be vice president of the company in five years. I was only 29 at the time. Or 27, yeah. and uh, and I said I know that, and I said I've enjoyed working with you and, and everybody I've met here, great people, great experience. But time to go into music, push whatever I can, open doors whatever I can, just to see how far whatever talent I have will take me. Yeah, and that's the spirit that I entered the music business wholeheartedly, uh, unabashedly in 1969. Wow. So. When you made that decision, obviously you you left. What did you have to go into? Were you just kind of starting from scratch? And yeah, really. Uh, rumor had gotten around somehow that I had bands in college yeah. all the time. I always had a band playing at. Uh, to me, it was more fun to play music at the sock hop than to go to the hop itself. Yeah. Uh, you can, know, yeah all musicians totally can relate that. to this. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather be playing than down there dancing. Yeah. Not that I was less interested in girls than any other guy, but um, I, we just had bands. I remember even in high school I had a band, and and I came home one night and my dad said, well, are you making any money at this? And I said, Dad, they paid me $15 myself tonight for playing the piano, which I love for three hours. Yeah. <laughs> I said, it's about 15 bucks back in those days was That's probably, uh, you know, 150 bucks today. Yeah. So he thought about that, and, and, and there, there was a smile on his face. This was back when I was about 15 years old, and he said, well, I don't know. He said, you do what you think is right. So so in those bands, just basically more... Oh, like there was a piano, bass, bass guitar. usually uh, an acoustic guitar and an electric guitar, yeah. and the acoustic would inevitably end because unless they were mic'd, they couldn't compete with it. Right. And my piano, unless it was mic'd, I couldn't compete with it, yeah. which led to me to play high up on the keyboard because that's the only place I could break, cut through the the electronic instruments. Hence, I still play up top. It's a habit. And my melodies tend to be tinkly and I certainly the piano pieces and I tend to use the upper part of the keyboard more more than the lower one. Although I did develop the funky bass, uh, I realized in playing solo piano and if I wanted to play those rock tunes, I had to come up with the equivalent of the bass section, you know, guitar, bass, and drums. And that would be my left hand. So I I formulated a method of the picking up on the last beat of every bar and then playing the downbeat. Uh, That usually happened with my thumb and my fifth finger of the left hand. Ba-boom, 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 like the bass. And and then you'd play the guitar strumming off that with the pedal down, exactly. <laughs> the bass holding the note, you'd yeah. play the guitar strum up on the middle of the keyboard and the melody on up top. top yeah. and, and that was my style. I still do it. Yeah. 
And I've had great piano players who recorded my songs phone me up and say, is this really the bass line on your piece? I said, yeah, man, it's my secret. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I got a reputation uh, for playing. So that reputation, uh, our bands were always busy. My bands are always busy. And when I got to college, you know, it was even worse or better, I suppose one would say. There was the Thank God It's Friday party on Friday afternoon. Oh, yeah. There was the pre-football game party at noon on Saturday. Yeah. The football game at 2. And then after 5 o'clock, they'd pick up on the evening party again. And we go till midnight. Wow. That's a lot of playing. A lot of playing. And I was making a fortune. I bought my own MGA sports car. Wow. The girls were all over the place. It was great. But I didn't have time for them. I was playing all yeah. the time, you know. But I was formulating, I guess, a lot of a, a strange style that would inevitably end up with what I'm doing today, which I call for what a what of a better word, classical rock. You know, that's yeah. what I fool around with. So you left left work, decided to go to music full time. What yeah. was your what was your first kind of Well the break first there? the first <laughs> I don't know how big it was. The first gig was a thing of reputation again. I, I somehow I'd had this reputation among friends or I don't know it probably came from those dance bands at McGill somebody the word got out that Mills had a pretty neat band and uh, and, and again it was two guitars bass and drums and, and piano like um, yeah. and I sang at the time I would do all the Ray Charles stuff and uh, a lot of animals music and um, you know House of the Rising Sun that yeah. stuff and the band would go on for, I remember we, we had we, we could change Ray Charles, What I Say, the song What I Say, from three minutes to 23 minutes. Oh, and yeah. and the, 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 I remember the floors would be bouncing in this, <laughs> these old homes where the fraternities were in Montreal. Yeah. And, and the floors, I think, you guys better reinforce these floors because that song is, <laughs> we're going to all end up dead. You know? <laughs> but it was rock and rock. So what happened? I, I, I went into music and uh, I guess... Uh, Kevin Hunter was a, was a promoting guy who I'd bumped into. Uh, I, I was at that time going down to, uh, I liked the group The Bells, and I had gone down to the Bonaventure Hotel where they played on Fridays and Saturday nights in Montreal. Yeah. It was a nice theater, uh, a nice show, show bar that they had on the top floor of the Bonaventure. So I'd go down there and listen to them play and music. And, and the word got out, I guess, that I was looking for work. And about um, two months only, after I jumped into the pond from the high diving board of music, yeah. uh, Kevin Hunter phoned me and he said, listen, I've got these three gals I've just signed. He was a promoter and he said, uh, they, I need somebody to hone their, their, their act up because I want to take them to New York City for two weeks and just let them play. They were very attractive girls, uh, three guitars, wow. and they sang great harmony together. And I said, sure, I'll do it. So. Uh, I started working with them on on their harmonies and and how to arrange the songs that were more easily sung by them and yeah. just general music principles and loved it. But unfortunately, after the trip to New York, they pretty well disbanded. I think they realized they'd hit a brick wall in music too, and it was yeah. time to for them to move on to other things. And but what it did give me was that Kevin knew about me playing and he knew. Uh, I think he knew he was getting a pretty good deal here. I had some good credentials, but I wasn't asking for a lot of money at the time. I'd yeah. only been in the business two months, so yeah. you take what you get, you know, at that point. 
And the next thing I knew, Kevin phoned me, and then Cliff Edwards phoned me. And, and Cliff was the uh, leader of the Bells. Kevin represented the Bells at that time in Canada. Pretty hot group. Um, certainly nothing like rock and roll today, but they had Manitoba Morning, uh, Moody Manitoba Morning, which was a big song for them. And I joined them in 69, approximately three months after I'd gone into the business, oh, yeah. which was nine months quicker than I had budgeted for, which is great. Yeah, I was earning some pretty big money with them. And we had the big hit stay a while in 71 in the spring of March 71. So were you going into the studio or recording with them? Absolutely. And, yeah. and that Cliff was great. He'd been in the studio for two or three years before I got there. Yeah. And uh, of course I had done some studio work even at McGill as a songwriter. There were some things I had, projects I had to do with yeah. recording. And that was all done as part of the, of the curriculum. But working with Cliff was really the best thing for me because it got me I was very comfortable in the studio from the day I walked in. There was never a question of me of not knowing the chart or not being able to play it. Yeah. Or, uh, and that is all attributed to my success at McGill. And um, I was really pleased about the, uh, the opportunities Cliff gave me to do some arranging for the group. They recorded three of my songs. That's excellent. And uh, I suppose by the, the end, of when, when, St when Stay A While really became the monster that it did in Canada and the States in particular, I suppose by then I was beginning to feel that uh, I'd made the right decision, that music was happening fast for me, faster than I expected. There would be four years of doldrums between what I'm telling you now and what went on later, yeah. but, but uh, that was to be expected. And... Uh, I just felt that I was, I guess, more prepared perhaps for the studio and what it implied than most of the other musicians that I had played with in school and, and at college. So with the Dells, were you, were you touring a lot with them? Yeah, we, they, the, uh, they, they sort of toured mostly in Canada. Yeah. And, and I realized that, I never said this to any of them, but there was a lot of m movement in Canada to promote Canadians and Canadian writing and Canadian music. Yeah. Gordon Lightfoot said something that I thought at the time he said it was rather arrogant. He said, well, if we're good enough to play in the United States, we can compete with the Americans. Yeah. But if we give tariffs so that we're, we're not quite as good, but you got to be played in the country... Um, that's not going to help our musicianship. That's just going to get a lot of lesser quality pieces being played. Correct. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty harsh at the first time I heard it from Gordon. I got to know him quite well over the years, yeah. and we talked about it many times. And I realized when I was working with the Bells that there was something that wasn't, wasn't quite commercially right yet with that group. Yeah. I can't pinpoint it. They were talented. They were good singers. I just felt that I'm not so, I wasn't so sure about how much further they could go, yeah. to be honest, which is being harsh, but it was my reality at the time. Yeah. So I left them in the summer of 71 after Stay A While had become such a big hit and went on my own. And, and, and again, things fell into place. The vice president of Polydor, in who the Polydor Records was stationed, the head office in Montreal in Canada at the time, it's now yeah. Toronto, but uh, in fact, I think they've been bought out by Sony. But at the time, 
I became a friend of the president of the company, Everett Gerritsen, who treated me like his son. He would say, hey, come on in, let's have a chat. He'd say, get some coffee. I'm tired of doing business, you know, I want to talk to you about music. And then uh, Guy Bertrand, who was vice president of the company, I'll never forget this. There was a place in Toronto, a bar called the Ports of Call, and I don't know why we were there, but Guy was there and a few of the guys from Polydor, and I was just shooting the breeze with them. And... Uh, and I had to go to the men's room, and, and when I went in there, Guy was there, and we're both doing a whittle, you know, and he looks at me and he says, Frank, I don't care what you've written or what you've released. He said, I'll release it whenever it's ready. And what more confidence could you have? Yeah. You know, this was a deal that I didn't even have to make. All I had to do was make music, which is what I wanted to do in the first place. Yeah. And so I recorded my first album. I, I borrowed money to do it. I hired the musicians. I hired the studio. I hired whatever I needed to do, filed the musicians' contracts, played piano and harmonica wherever I could myself, did the arranging, hired some violinists to do sort of a funky backdrop on, on, on the thing, and uh, made my first album. So what, what style would that album would have been? <laughs> or would you have? Where Boy, would you replace that? That's a question of all questions. Darren, <laughs> <laughs> right, you just hit the, the, no, the nail on the head. Um, that was a conundrum for me. Yeah. I didn't quite know how I was going to fit in to the, the pop music scene. And I decided that although I was narrow casting, and although I had had a, a, a small but significant hit, with a song called Love Me, Love Me, Love. I was singing it. It was originally an instrumental, but I was singing it when it became the hit. Yeah. I never thought of myself as a singer. I've always thought of myself as a composer or songwriter, not as a piano player. Yeah. There are 10 guys out there every night who can play piano better than I can, but I'm not so sure they have the ability to put on the show the way I do or, or play uh, with that funky bass in the upright that I use. You know, yeah. They never seem to figure it out for themselves, and I did. So um, without sounding arrogant, it just fell into place. And uh, I did that first album, which was a piano and... And uh, I always remember it was an 8-track, one of the first 8-track recordings done in Montreal. Wow. That was all new to me. Yeah. And, of course, the piano got two tracks, and then uh, there were the various other instruments. We ended up with uh, basically piano, guitar, bass, and drums, and four violinists in unison. Oh, yeah. That gave us sort of a Scottish, unintentionally, a, a Scottish feel, or a country feel even. Yeah to the melodies I was playing. And people really liked it. They, they, uh, perhaps I should have stayed there. Of course, in the end, Music Box Dancer allowed me to hire whatever musicians I wanted. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Big orchestra included, and make the music I really wanted to make. Um, but back then on that first album, it was all new. It's all hindsight now, yeah. 40 years later, but it was new at the time. Yeah. Exciting, probably. Very exciting, but as Alan Thicke one day said to me later on in years when I shared a dressing room with him uh, down in L.A. and we were chatting about the business, he said, you know, the trouble with you and I is that we live by our wits. We never know what's going to be the next success in our lives, yeah. which was true. Yeah. And so I'm always dabbling with this thing. Well, now look, this piano and orchestra thing, man, that's narrow casting. You know, there'd been some great hits from Mancini 
like Moon River and, and some wonderful songs that, sure. I, that I loved. Yeah. I mean, I loved the rock and roll side of it when I was young, but I could feel the older I was getting, I was gravitating more to bigger orchestra music. And, and I still was undefined as to how this was going to work itself out. Yeah. Uh, and always very uh, concerned that, you know, I got to pay for this with my mind. If these songs don't get airplay and don't sell, I've had it. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to live with. That was my biggest fear. Well, then I got married and had three kids. And that even accentuated the stresses, which under my uh, neurosis that I didn't realize I had at the time was not a good thing for anybody within, when, you know, within earshot of me. Yeah. <laughs> I could be really angry at times when things weren't working well. Yeah. And so a temper um, got me into a lot of trouble, and I, I later had to deal with that. But fortunately, the kids still love me and call me dad, so I guess it wasn't too bad. Yeah. But in any event, I know they suffered a little bit from it, and so did I, because I, I, I truly was, was, was always worried about where the next dollar would come from. I had to juggle my finances all the time, try and make ends meet, as they say, despite the fact that I was touring with the bells in canada and the states and making you know we could make six or seven hundred bucks a week back then just gigging and doing what we wanted to do sure the big problem was that we never played four weeks in a month we might play three if we're lucky yeah so you're not you're back down again you know yeah financially so uh, narrow casting was something i thought i would have to live with and if i were going to concentrate on pop music I would have to become sort of like a Jerry Lee Lewis without the vocals. Exactly, yeah. And could I pull that off? Yeah. And I think in hindsight, I probably did about as much with it as I could. Uh, I've never made it to the point of having endless gold records and endless wealth. But it hasn't mattered because... I've gone far enough as far as I'm concerned. I don't need any more. Yeah. And, and, and my questions have been answered, you know. So that, that first album finished up and, and uh, you know, you married, kids. Yeah, um, taxi cab driver's license. Yeah, well, you, you did that for uh, a while. Oh, yeah, 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 I did that for a while. And then uh, I luckily got a job at CBC in Montreal doing a one-hour Sunday brunch show, oh, wow. which was great. Uh, it, it put bread on the table every week. It was a nice weekly thing. Yeah. And uh, we do 26 sections a year. Uh, and they repeat them, so you get paid for that too. And yeah, that kept me out of trouble for a few years. So, would you call this that four-year hiatus that you were talking about earlier? Is this where we're at, at now? Exactly. Yeah. This was the time when I had had "Love Me, Love Me, Love." After the within six months of leaving the Bells, I had a number one hit yeah. in Canada, number forty in the states, called "Love Me, Love Me, Love," and uh, that gets back to Gordon's com Gordon Lightfoot's comment that. Uh, you know, the CRTC did promote Canadian music and it did uh, give a lot of people a chance, an opportunity to be heard on the radio. But by the same token, if we were going to compete in the States, we had our production ha had to be good. Yeah. Our songs had to be strong. The musicianship had to be strong. Everything had to be strong. And despite the CRTC, uh, they were more interested in getting it played at the time. And so there was some conflict there. And I, in the end, I agreed with Gordon. I said, you know, you were absolutely right about this sort of helping people and giving out money to make records and whatnot. And I said, you know that? Eventually, you're down to the bottom line again 
of uh, competing with the best. Yeah. Not to say that all the American products are the best either, or other world, but uh, musically speaking, that's where I was at. And after the instrumental album, the first one I did, had Love Me, Love Me, Love on it, which was an instrumental piece of music. Yeah. And uh, Frank Gould at Polydor Records said to me, do you have lyrics for it? And I said, yeah. He said, well, sing them. I thought, sing them? I don't sing. Anyway, he stuck the record on in his office, and I sung it. And he said, I'll pay for the recording. Go down tomorrow, put the lyrics on it, and we'll release it in a month. And within six months, it was number one. Wow. Yeah. So that was the end of the Easy Money. Yeah. The album after that one was a vocal album called Reflections of My Childhood, which, again, I paid for. And I, I had learned... Uh, I guess a lot of my dad's business acumen had fallen on my shoulders and I did learn how to work the commercial system yeah. and borrow money and invest it in, in music. And uh, <laughs> every time I borrowed money to invest in music, the bank manager would look at me and say, this is not for music. Tell them you're moving or tell them you're doing something. <laughs> but don't, don't mention music. Yeah. That's not in this office. It's not part of the deal. Okay. So again, I, there was still enough money. Love me, love me, love me. It made me a lot of money. I mean, it was a gold record. Yeah. And it was my first real uh, jump. Within to, after two years of leaving A.E. LePage, I had two gold records. One for Stay A While, because I was a member of the Bells. Yeah. And then uh, the other one, because I had this song, uh, Love Me, Love Me, Love, which went originally an instrumental that went to number one. So um, I, I wisely put some money away. In those days, you could buy annuities and you would get a monthly check while somebody invested your money for sure. you. Yeah. And that meant the kids could uh, avoid craft dinner a few nights a yeah. week anyway. So were you actually signed with Polydor at that time? Oh yeah, yeah. I signed with them. And, mm -hmm. and the clue musically was that I realized if I were an artist, which I, I, I was with the Bells, and they were perhaps making six or 7% mm -hmm. of the retail selling price, that if I funded the project, and got a distribution agreement, I was making 16 to 18%. Yeah. So in other words, if something ever worked. You're way better off. Yeah. Way better off. Yeah. And knowing that, I virtually produced and owned all of my product until I got to the point where it didn't matter anymore, so I just let the record company own it. Yeah. And, and we've always settled out copyright issues, et cetera, about it, but they've always been pretty good to me about it. And, um, I then found myself with that vocal album, which was a flop, frankly. It, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. I knew it wouldn't. I, I didn't. We had a couple of hits off it, sort of hits, I guess. Poor Little Fool, the Sheila Shelley song that uh, I, I recorded and sang. And I remember her calling me one day and saying, wow, you're getting a lot of airplay. Thanks for recording my song, you know? Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I'm getting a lot of airplay, but I should have written that song, not you. So, yeah, I guess once you've had success writing your own music and then seeing the money come in from that and then see it go somewhere else you know, it makes you think twice whether you should be doing that or not yeah especially when you're so independent yeah. you know I, there was nobody helping me at all and i remember alan thick's words you know yeah so that led me back to the instrumental albums again and then 73 74 i recorded the album the poet and i yes and on that album was The Poet and I, which was getting a lot of airplay because it was being played by a disc jockey named Paul Reed in Montreal who had an evening show and he would play it a lot. It's a lush sort of ballady piece. 
And on the B side was the 11th cut on that album, which for a long time didn't have a name. Uh, and eventually when I was repairing my daughter's music box in the spring of 74, uh, just before I recorded the final tracks of the album, I looked at that little dancer that I was fixing for her on a pedestal and I thought, that's it. She's the music box dancer. And that became the name of the 11th cut that hardly got recorded because you only put 10 cuts on albums then. Yeah. And I went into Polydor and I remember Frank Frank Gould said, what's with the 11th cut on this album? I said, Frank, this may sound trite, but I need the two cents. You know, you got two cents for every mechanical royalty. Every time it was stamped out, you got two cents. Sure. Which on a, a thousand records doesn't add up to a lot, but on a hundred thousand records, yeah. you know, added up to a lot of money. So that's how it got started. And then we went to the demo thing with the 45s that were sent out uh, whenever the record company wanted to promote something. And they were pretty, Polydor was very good about it. These, uh, I'd had a significant amount of airplay and success that, that did carry over through the next four years. But basically, that album sat in the drawer for four years. The Poet and I was getting some airplay in Montreal, but that doesn't make you a fortune. No. Love Me, Love Me, Love was, was uh, uh, over with, and uh, Music Box Dancer was being played a, a lot, but not enough to create any real interest on the part of the recording company. So tell the story how that song came about to getting played because it was on a B-side. Exactly. Um, I had met Dave Watts, with whom I'm still very friendly with. He's a nice man, good guy, my age. We have a lot of fun together. And Dave was the, uh, probably the top rock jock at at CFRA Radio in Ottawa, which was a big station, very powerful in Canada. It had the whole government behind it in the sense that you know, it was an adult station, really, adult rock, but it was yeah. more adult than teens as opposed to some of the other stations in the country like Toronto and whatnot. Sure. And Dave had come to many Bells concerts because we were selling records and they were playing them. Yeah. And I got to know Dave quite well. We'd have a few beers at the Talisman Bar, and <laughs> which was this very strange hotel and restaurant that modeled itself after uh, some hotel in the Philippines or in Thailand or oh, really? something, with the grass skirts and the yeah, whole yeah, bit. Yeah. Anyway, we'd, ha- we'd had a few beers there. And when Music Box and The Poet and I were released on a single, based solely on airplay, The Poet and I was getting more play than anyone else, and, and Music Box Dancer was getting the second amount, uh, all for different reasons. And uh, Frank Gould said to me, I'd like to release this, Bo. He said, I don't know, The Poet and I, he said, it's a... It's a wild card. He said, it might work, it might not. And then he said, well, the B-side, I like the B-side, he said, but let's go with the math on the thing and and the projections. And so it was released as a single with the poet and I on the A-side, this lush, uh, milky ballad versus this poppy little funky tinkly piano piece on the B-side. And Dave Watts gets the copy of it in Ottawa when it was mailed out to all the radio stations. And he phones me and he said, I've got some interesting news for you. He said, I I looked at your promo. Uh, These were 45s at the time with the big center, you know. He said, I've looked at your promo release here. And he said, I played the poet. And I said, we can't play that. We're an adult rock station. And he said, I just can't play it. It's too slow and dreamy and it's not 
get up and have fun today music. And yeah. I said, I agree. I was never, never, under, never disillusioned about my product. I knew enough about the business to know that he couldn't play it and he had every good reason not to. Yeah. And not for me to browbeat him to play it. I just said, that, that's fine, you know. And sure. he said, well, the good news is I played the B-side for the fun of it, and I haven't been able to make a phone call for two hours because the switchboard's been jammed. Wow. Everybody wants to know what this crazy little piano piece is. Yeah. And he said, I've never seen anything like it in my career. And in those days, you know, the big deal was getting you charted. Oh, if you're charted, you're on the way sure. to hit, you know, yeah. or at least how far you're going to go. And he said, I'm gonna, he said, I'm not even gonna list it at 100. He said, I'll list it at 90 with a bullet if you can get some records up here soon. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, what soon? This was a Thursday, I think. I phoned the guy at the taxi cab office and said, forget it, you're not gonna see me anymore. And I drove up to Ottawa on the Monday Trying to get some records made from Polydor was difficult at that time because the guy in charge of the company was in Germany, uh, which is where they were head office. Sure. And the next guy in command was on vacation. And luckily, Dieter Radecki at the time was one of the lesser executives of the company. But he said, he said, we've always been good friends. And he said, I'm going to do this for you. He said, I'll shut down the presses. We'll pump out a thousand copies for you. You could take them to Ottawa Monday morning, which I did. And the rest was really history. Uh, it went from 90 with a bullet to 80 to 70 to 60, and it finally number one, and it sat there for two or three weeks until it got bounced off by the Doobie Brothers with What a Fool Believes, you know, great wow. song. Yeah. So obviously it, it started to get picked up by, you know, because Ottawa. It only big, took the one. Yeah. The, yeah, and then the rest channel. of them had to get on it yeah. because rumors spread, you know, yeah. and they do. And the business is such that uh, it's the expression today is going viral, but that is also being abused yeah. today. You know, is this really viral? Is, is this viral in Saskatoon? Exactly. It's a big difference of being yeah. viral in, in uh, Toronto and, and viral in Saskatoon. Yeah. Not to be, uh, you know, insulting in any way whatsoever. It's just hard economic fact. So... Uh, How long did it take to really spread across? Not the, long. Yeah. I was no. surprised. Uh, the, the Americans didn't pick up... Oh, this was in 1978 in Canada. It really, in the late fall was number one just about everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> a guy again at Polygram Records, a fellow I befriended and still talk to now and then, Mike Hoppy, uh, he, he said, hey, listen, the vice, the vice president of, 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 of Polydor US, which was Deutsch Gramophone at the time, mm -hmm. is gonna be in Toronto. And he said, I got a little bar that we could go and have him have supper with him. And he said, I want you to, he said, the, the piano is surrounded by plants. And <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I want you to leave the table and go and start playing music box dancer. Yeah. And he said, I know he's going to get on it right away. And I was playing and playing and no sign of this guy. And then all of a sudden the bull rushes parted and the president of Deutsch Gramophone US walks through and says, I love it, I love it. We'll distribute it. We'll sell it tomorrow. Give it to me. Give it to me. He couldn't wait. Awesome. And the next thing was he said, I probably won't pay you very much for the singles, but you're going to get a gold album anyway. Yeah. And that's how it went. He knew right away it was a smash. Wow. So that, that, hap that scenario basically happened in 26 other countries. And... Incredible being an instrumental. I mean, on top of that, it was an instrumental. Yeah, so. and four hours later, uh, yeah. four days, excuse me, four years later yeah. than the recording. Yeah. You know, it was spooky the way it all happened. It just had to happen. Yeah. But if you remember, the disco era ended around 78. Mm -hmm. People were tired of 
of, of thumping music just to dance to, which disco was. So it was great, you know, nothing better than Saturday Night Fever, in my opinion. But uh, the, the audience was ready for something different. Sure. And piano, well, it's come and it's gone, and it's come and it's gone over the years. And when I travel out west here in particular, it's always, uh, certainly here in Alberta, it, there are a lot of piano players. Winters are long here. Yeah. So people in, 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 in the western provinces in general tend to play a lot of piano. Yeah. It's still strong. The instrument itself, now it's gone full bore. I had an electronic piano that I traveled with for 12 years, and nobody knew the difference. No. And I, in fact, I had a concert grand shell made that we put the synthesizer into and used that. You could take it anywhere, take it on the plane, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Set it up in the barnyard and play. It was great. Yeah. So now we're renting pianos because nobody keeps them in concert halls anymore because nobody uses them. Exactly. So I'm a dying breed, I guess. The um, outside of obviously you became big in the U.S. and Canada. What was the do you remember what the next big country that picked up on, on the song was? Definitely Japan. Yeah. And they went crazy. When you stop and think about it, the Japanese love little tinkly stuff. You know, they, they, they churn out music boxes by the millions yeah. and they, their cars are all very high techy and, and have the latest in electronics and whatever. And that, 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 they are very good at that. They're very good at doing that. So is that obviously part of Polydor and their worldwide distribution? It was Polydor KK. Uh, all the Polydor companies were offered these songs, and if, if they weren't that album, I should say, and if they didn't pick up on it, then they went to EMI or somebody else. Yeah. Because my contract was contingent upon them uh, releasing it, A, in Canada and the United States, and if it didn't get released in the States, the contract ended. Yeah. So they were under some pressure too. So how, how soon did you start performing? I mean, obviously that song became big and people wanted to see you. Um, how soon were you starting to do shows after that? Was it pretty quick? Really quick. In 78, again, Dave Watts phoned me that summer when Music Box was a hit in Ottawa yeah. and spreading rapidly across Canada uh, until the end of 78 when it hit the States in 79. But I never forget, it was the summer of 78, and Dave phoned me and he said, you know, the station's put a lot of effort into your music. And I said, Dave, you've done everything you possibly could. It, it, it was a very, I don't know, I just felt so indebted to those people. Yeah. Again, I've run into people who go out of their way to help me. I don't know, I, I, perhaps I, I have that aura about me that I need help. But anyway, <laughs> and that's not wrong. Um, anyway, uh, th that particular scene was so funny because he said, well, Pepsi want would like you to come to Ottawa. They're going to sponsor a little concert because this song of yours is not only hitting the pop people, it's getting children, piano players, and they just want to have a little party for you at Moody's Bay. And would you play a few songs? We'll get a piano. They're going to buy the... They'll, they'll distribute the Pepsi to everybody free and hot dogs free. If But he said, you know, would you play for 10 or 12 songs? I said, sure, it'd be delightful. So, sure enough, I'm living in Montreal at the time, and uh, I'm on my way to do the concert at 2 o'clock on the Saturday afternoon. I think it was July. And um, a Saturday afternoon, and, and I get stuck in this traffic jam going to Moody's Bay, which I'd never been to in my life before. And it's just not moving, and I'm supposed to be there at 2, and I'm bogged down in traffic, and it's about 15 minutes to 2, and it's just not going anywhere. And uh, 
it was so funny the way it happened. I rolled down my window. And the guy next to me looked like he, he was okay, you know. So I said to him, excuse me, sir, but is the traffic always like this here? Because I'm hoping to get to Moody's Bay soon. And he said, no, 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 the traffic's never like this. There's some guy named Frank Mills who's playing up at Moody's Bay at 2 o'clock. So there I was stuck in my own traffic jam. <laughs> what could be better? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nobody knew it. So I guess what had been somewhat difficult in a way here you had your first big huge number one hit. well yeah. you've had a couple before well that, that's it but that was the big one yeah um and then you had to go out and do shows i guess the tough thing was what else do you do <laughs> to you know when you especially when you have one i think anyone has this issue when you have you know that monster big hit and you haven't had 20 hits before it uh, people want to come see you. Uh, you know, how do you fill a whole concert? Like, what do you, that's what do you do? I mean, that's probably was a, a lot of thought to, to put into that. It wasn't the thought; it was the trepidation that yeah. killed me. You know, what am I going to do? I said to Dave, "What do you want me to do? Play Music Box ten times?" You know, because I wasn't ready for it. Yeah. I had performed before, obviously. Oh, yeah. So getting out on a stage was not the issue, and I had done that enough to be confident about that. The issue was, what repertoire am I going to play? Yeah. And I decided the best thing to do would be to put in some um, some songs that everybody knew. So sure. I played Heartbreak Hotel, and I played Bye Bye Love, and yeah. I played a lot of the hits, and then Music Box Dancer, and then I'd play a few more hits, and then Music Box Dancer. And they went crazy. They expected 500 people at Moody's Bay and five thousand showed up wow. they ran out of pepsi ran out of hot dogs ran out of everything and i was still there i think at four o'clock or five o'clock <laughs> playing away happily and everybody yeah. had a great time yeah that's fabulous it, that must it have is felt amazing when that show was done i think it proved a lot of things and answered yeah. a lot of questions and uh, i've always been very analytical about what i'm doing and uh, you know am i on the right track here because you're only as strong as your latest hit, you know. It's sure. it's a it's a scary place to be, and I, I made my mistakes in predicting it. Um, I suppose I might be getting a little better now that there've been so many albums, so many songs. But even then, when I play a song in concert, and uh, uh, particularly what we're doing in our concerts these days, which is playing along with the full orchestra. Uh, I, I, I sort of wonder, you know, are people going to like this? They're yeah. used to the piano almost alone with the four violinists. That was what my pop background was. And, and even the, uh, the whole orchestral arranging for the album on which Music Box Dancer was, called The Poet and I, was basically that instrumentation. Yeah. I added a chorus to beef it up a bit. And in some places I added cellos and violas for the, the underlinings of, of the string section primarily because I could afford to do so yeah. I couldn't before <laughs> and uh, but I'm still back at simple piano and I sort of wonder maybe that's where I should have stayed maybe I should have just churned out song after song after song with those arrangements but that's not really what I was in music for no no I was in it to see how far I could take it and what could I do to make what I thought would be better and it was a partial goal of mine was starting to come out here there's some direction was starting to gel, yeah. the best way of putting it. And now we're about 1980 at this time. And, yeah. and I'm thinking, 
what, what, what do I really want to do? And it was sort of, I, I'd love to get people more interested in orchestral music by playing pop music with the orchestra. Sure. That was a part of it. So you are probably one of the pioneers of doing that because that's still, that's how kind of orchestras are surviving now. They're, they're doing pop series and that's what's keeping the money rolling in. Absolutely. And yeah. I must have done a hundred of those concerts yeah. after Music Box. All gratis. I, I did it because I wanted to, they, they were all trying to raise money. Yeah. And nothing was better than invite me and then pack the hall make a fortune and I'd move on, which was fine. I wasn't getting paid for it, but I was happy to see classical music in a sense, classical orchestra being promoted. So you started also touring really all over the world. Um, Absolutely, yeah, 1980 mm -hmm. was my uh, first invitation to uh, Japan after doing a television tour of the United States. Yeah. Which there, there again, we, we were forced into uh, to, um, doing TV because this was all happening so fast. It was the only medium available to me to, to cover the United States in a month or two. Sure. You can't do it in concert unless you're doing five concerts a day and that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So that's what I found myself touring Japan and touring the world and still thinking about where am I going with this? You know, what's going to happen? Where, where should I go with this? And so, uh, those questions, I think your question is very astute. It, it was a conundrum for me for a long time. Mm -hmm. And all because of what Alan Thicke said, <laughs> we live by our wits. And that next song, are, do they like it or not? Sure. And I remember playing that first. There, there were two major influences on me with regard to orchestra and, uh, and pop writing. And, and the two strongest influences at all were, I remember... Um, doing a TV show with Mason Williams, who wrote a classical gas, which was my, the guy beat me. <laughs> this guy heard it the first time, and I thought, damn it, I've been licked at my own game. He's, he's got this piece out, it's a hit, it's a wonderful piece of music. Yeah. I was so jealous and envious because uh, I later met Mason, and we talked a lot about it, and I wrote a song called The Classical Rock, which I said to him to say, you know, thanks for your hints, and, and this is the result of our conversation. Yeah. But that said, and the, I just loved that piece of classical gas. And uh, the next, but there were actually two bigger influences, I suppose. I remember driving across a bridge, which is very narrow, to get to my apartment on the north side of Montreal. And I heard uh, Richard Harris did an album with Jimmy Webb called The Tramp Shining. And his hit out of that was a song called MacArthur Park. Mm -hmm. And it has harpsichord in it and a lot of orchestra. Jimmy was a master at recording and arranging for orchestra. And I thought, gosh, this is so close to what I want to do also, you know. And I remember pulling over this one lane, well, two lane bridge, but going each way. I pulled over on my lane and stopped the car and the horse started honking. And I'm listening to Jimmy Webb, Richard Harris singing, yeah. you know, uh, that song, MacArthur Park. And, and I realized I was blocking the traffic. And so I crossed the bridge and pulled over on the other side until the finish, because it's quite a long song. The other influence on me was really uh, when uh, Paul Buck Buckmaster did the arrangements for Elton John's first album. Oh yeah. With uh, your song on it. Mm -hmm. But more important, there's a song on called 60 Years On. Mm -hmm. And the string chart on it is so Stravinsky-like. 
Yeah. You know, it, it's just beautiful string writing. I, I, that was another one that I thought, oh my God, if I could write strings like that. But then I met Jim Peary in Canada who could write strings like that. And I worked with Jim for 20 years, I guess, before he passed away about six, seven years ago. And uh, he did some great arranging for me and allowed my dreams of, of, of classically oriented pop rock music and the orchestra to come to fruit. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. So obviously, Music Box Dancer is still, you know, a huge song, but it, it would have peaked at some point and probably felt like it, you know, you need to go on to what, what's my next thing and what I need to do next to kind of come up with another Music Box Dancer. What was your thought of, of where to go from there? The first thing I learned was that I couldn't come up with another Music Box Dancer. It was too big. Yeah. That doesn't happen in instrumental music. Um and it wouldn't happen. It, it ranks in, the, in one of the top 10 instrumental pieces ever played, ever written. That's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm very happy about that. Yeah. But as you said, it peaks. Uh, and now it's fallen off its peak. But it, it's sort of at a comfort. It's on a plateau now. Yeah. That doesn't change. No. The world loves it. New piano players are coming up. New kids are being born every day. And, and they are my audience. Sure. And that has plateaued. So... It's pretty well reached a consistent level stage now. Yeah. Fortunately, the royalties are welcomed. But on the other hand, uh, that's never been a big deal for me. I, I think uh, making the money side of the music was really part of my plan to allow me to, to do better with it. I spent it on orchestras and I spent it on recordings and I spent it on demos. I started doing demos of, of different approaches um, I had always liked Roberto Delgado, who was recorder for uh, Deutsche Grammophone, his instrumental pieces. James Last and his orchestra were mm -hmm. churning them out in Germany. Uh, half a billion songs, you know, he sold half a billion, billion records he sold. Wow. And I'm thinking, you know, can I do this? So I went up to Ottawa and recorded some demos in a style that he was using. Um, the orchestra and chorus, lead singers. Uh, that didn't work. It, it just was not where I wanted to go. And so I ended up doing my own thing, which in reality was continuing to write piano-oriented pieces accompanied by some large orchestration and uh, usually with a pop beat somewhere in it. Sure. And that's had a, that, that has posed a problem because I think I've written a lot of quite attractive piano melodies that don't get played because there's uh, the, the rhythm section behind it. Oh, yeah. If that weren't there, they'd be place, playing it on classical stations. Yeah. And that hasn't happened. So I was thinking of mixing them again without the rhythm section and putting out an album. You know, Maybe they'd play it, maybe they wouldn't. Yeah. But it's all conjecture. So obviously, you must have done a lot of TV work with a song that, that large. Oh, yeah. um, you mentioned you were in the States doing a lot of uh, TV press and that. Yeah. Um, what were some of the highlights for you there? Oh, I remember doing the Merv Griffin show, the Dinosaur show, a lot of big names I met. I had my own TV specials with CBC here in Canada and ATV down east. Yeah. And uh, uh, what's the other one? Not CBC, but the opposing group in Toronto. CTV. Uh, CTV did a lot of work with them. And it was all great. It was all fun. But I hated television. Oh, yeah. I had a dreadful fight with my weight until I was about 60, and, and a doctor I met introduced me to sugar. 
And she claimed that my ailment was caused by the inability of my body to process sugar. All sugar does for me is puts the pounds on. Oh, yeah. And she convinced me to do something about it when she told me she thought I had diabetes. And I told her I thought she was crazy. But she said, do one thing for me. Just get off sugar for a month and see how you feel. Sure. I did that. Promptly lost 12 pounds. Felt like a million dollars. Had more energy than I've ever had in my life. I'm not saying this is something for everyone. But she claims that about one out of three people have this dreadful accelerator process brought on by eating too much sugar. Yeah. And in my case, it has happened. My weight has no longer been an issue. I fluctuate from two to three pounds up or down on either side of 205. And that's where I've been for 10 years now. That's great. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that made a, I mean, it makes a difference for everybody, I think. Well, and when I walk out on a TV show now, I feel confident, you know, instead yeah. of being slobby at one time and at other times miserable because I'm on a diet. <laughs> Diets do not do well with yeah. me. You know, they make me another guy. Again, that other guy comes out, you know. So you, you just really didn't like TV because you thought you looked too big on TV. I just didn't think I looked like I should have looked. Yeah. I, I could have looked a lot better. Yeah. You know, I thought, if you can lose 20 pounds, you'll, you'll feel happy about being on TV. Yeah. But it caused serious emotional conflicts within me. Yeah. And I had to get over it. And now at the point where I'm not on TV anymore, but I'm perfect in weight, you know, and yeah. it's a sad situation, but that's the way the cookie crumbled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're obviously out here on tour, um, on a tour that uh, Brian Edwards uh, is uh, promoting, and and uh, I know you've you've been working together with Brian a long time. How did how did that all come about? Uh, you and Brian kind of hooking up and started working together. Well, I think you mentioned earlier about the business about performing. Now all of a sudden I had to perform. I was scared stiff of it for I would say five years. Yeah. And uh, since Music Box happened in '78. Uh, in Canada, it would probably be 81, 82 before I felt comfortable walking out doing the, one of the favorite dates I loved always was doing that down on the harbor front in Toronto with the Toronto Symphony. Sure. And I played there several times every summer for probably four or five years. And that got me a little bit more used to playing in public. And then one day I sat down with m myself and I said, look here, you've got to start enjoying this because if you don't, your career's gonna suffer from it. And I, there was a point where I had thought, I have a decent sense of humor. I'm basically a good guy, I think. I like people. So you gotta go out there thinking, let it happen. Let it just be yourself and enjoy it. Yeah. And it's funny, all the groups I see today that are doing well, they're doing exactly that. They're being themselves. There's nothing presumptuous about them. And the ones who are presumptuous are no longer. Sure, yeah. You know? Yeah. So um, I eventually just talked myself into saying, look, you gotta walk out there and do it. So you might as well have fun. Don't let it be such an issue. And by doing so, I gradually reached the stage probably 20 years ago there isn't much that throws me. I could walk out and do a concert for the Queen, and uh, she's just another person as far as I'm concerned. Sure, yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's how I look at it. I've yeah. had uh, you know Pierre Elliott Trudeau 
uh, heard me play several occasions at the Juno Awards, and uh, that's Justin Trudeau's father. And um, I got to know him a little bit, which was a pleasure. And uh, I thought, I've got to meet these people at their level. And I, I, it was a lack of confidence, I think, that played part of it, but uh, yeah. and maturity. But I realized that uh, I could put on a decent show after a while. And having done it now for so many years, it's fun. Yeah, the audiences have dwindled somewhat. Um, you know, I'm not packing the houses like they used to be. But on the other hand, I see people in the lineup after the concert where I sign autographs, and they come up to me and say, "This is my seventh concert seeing you." Wow. And this might be in Saskatoon or anywhere in Canada. Yeah. You know, or I've been 10 times. Or I drove from Nunavut on my snowmobile 300 miles to see your concert. And I'm saying, you know, these people aren't fooling. They're very dedicated people. So I'm going to give them what they expect. Exactly. Yeah. And whether the audiences are as huge as they used to be or not, the nice thing is that when I walk out on stage, they're friends. I know, I've known them for years. Yeah. Not personally but they've loved my music for years. I still get emails from all of them. Yeah. I get many emails from all over the world, which I answer personally. And uh, the career really, you know, in hindsight, I, I look at it and say, I've gone about as far as I wanted to go. Yeah. I've pushed it, I think, as far as I could. Perhaps, as I said to, uh, uh, I think it's Peter Zosky who had a great show in Toronto and, it was a great interview, and he said to me one day, what percentage are you business and what percentage are you music? And I thought that was an amazing question for him to ask because I had become very much aware that my music talent was not at the level of Glenn Gould, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, <laughs> my favorite of all, Eric Clapton. Yeah. And I had to settle for the fact that perhaps I was maybe 40% music, uh, business and 60% music. And unlike them who had managers looking after their finances and all the rest of it, uh, unlike th those people who are 90%, 95% showbiz, you know, yeah. and great writers, etc. I've had to look back on it and, and frankly... Uh, say, I've really accomplished everything I set out to do. I, I don't need anything else. Yeah. My life is very full. And to be able to connect with those people who after all these years are diehard fans and come out to see me, what more can you ask for? I, I don't think there's much more. No, it's fantastic. Especially yeah. if you can get to that point where you just feel, yeah, I've done yeah. what I've wanted and you're super yeah. comfortable. And I think you get to a point where you you stop chasing the dream or whatever you want to call it right and you get i'm not sure if that's an age thing or or just a maturity thing or it's the point of your career or you just get to a point where it's like i just like making music and i like that people love what i'm doing yeah and there's you have nothing to prove besides just making these people happy and it's a great place to be there were stages yeah. that uh you know my first retirement took place in 2000 18 years ago yeah and I wrestled with it and what had happened was that I had toured with my band for 12 years yeah just, just the five of us great musicians all great people too and um, I toured with them for, and I thought if nothing changes I have to quit 
And I didn't know how to change it. I thought we were at an apex. Yeah. We were selling out houses still. We were having a lot of fun at what we were doing. And I didn't know what direction it would change, nor did I know how to do it. Yeah. So I retired. I didn't retire from songwriting at the time. I retired from showbiz sure, and performing. Well, 10 years later, we get into stage two of retirement. Yeah. And Brian Edwards phones and says, hey, do you want to go out with Rita McNeil? And I thought, wow, Rita, you know, audience is over 50, um, mature, um, pretty clean cut show just about everything I was doing when I retired. And I said to Brian, let's go. Yeah. So that was the first retirement of the retirement tour, I call them. And there have been eight since and two one year. So it's, this is the ninth retirement tour for touring as far as show the show goes. Yeah. Well, I toured with Rita for about five years off and on. And I wrote two songs she liked, recorded both of them. Um, Somewhere a Child is Sleeping, which had been written long before I knew Rita. She liked it. She recorded it. And then I wrote a song especially for her called Whatever Happened to Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit of a poke on, you know, there's no Santa Claus at the mall anymore and Christmas trees don't exist anymore and Jesus has all but disappeared. And uh, it's a funny song, really, and it wasn't meant to be serious, which it isn't. And she turned it into an almost a New Orleans funky blues piece, which is so cool. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe this is the time to stop songwriting. You know, I, this was great. And so I did. I didn't write a song for three or four years. And then, of course, uh, the, the, the song about In Flanders Fields came about, and that was the end of my composition retirement yeah. and that was another stage and what was happening here was that the question that I couldn't answer back in 2000 when I retired was how do I change this changed by fate by working with Rita brought me back out on the scene again with a whole new ball game yeah I was alone I was doing my own thing so during that 10 years of not doing live shows were there times that you wanted to get out or you just you were fine writing and enjoying life and I was fine writing I mean originally uh, if I'd had my druthers uh, I, I always thought I just wanted to be in the studio write songs and get people to sing them yeah perhaps that's a shame I didn't do that uh, that might have over the years produced perhaps more interesting songs for the public than my narrow casting with the piano mm -hmm. turned out but it wasn't to be I guess either my heart wasn't in it or I got involved with these other projects. Yeah. Uh, so I, I always think, you know, I look back at, I can only kind of relate to what I've been through. And, and there was a time that I spent uh, a lot of time in the studio. Sure. And produced a lot of projects and it was super creative. Sure. And I've, and when I was in high school, that's what I wanted to do. Sure. Uh, little kid going into with the with my family group when i was seven into the studio and just was mesmerized yeah, by being in the studio and, absolutely. and you know everything that had to do with it and then for me i i think i got burnt out i was just doing too much of it yep and i stepped away similar to how you stepped away from doing yeah. the live shows and now to this day, there's a big part of me that really thinks, what if I 
kept with that, you know? Sure. Uh, and um, because I like doing live, um, I like performing, uh, I like going out and doing the technical and the things. Um, but there's something about the studio um, and creating music that is different. And it's because I, some of it's, it's, it's just you, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not, you're not there to please a bunch of people. Um, there's not that worry, right? And that's enjoyable. But there's something about just being on your own creating. Um, I guess it's like painting or uh, anything that's creative and that end of things. Um, there's something special about that. And for me, I know uh, I miss I miss doing that. I mean, I get back in every once in a while. And it, but you need time. You, you really Absolutely. You just can't just dibble dabble no, in it. No. You need lots of time to really settle oh, in. Oh, yeah. And, it's a commitment. And, yeah, get yourself in that mode. And, um, you know, I think eventually I'll probably get myself back there again. But, um, uh, you know, I understand, you know, where you're coming from because, you know, getting back to just writing and that's really what your true uh probably what you figure your true self going back to mcgill and and going through learning how to write and 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 produce and and all that you know that's basically the heart of who of who you are exactly yeah well i think i've always felt that the the, the writer is where creativity begins sure it's where thought becomes words yeah written words so books, poetry, music, etc., plays, all the great art forms that we're with today uh, rely upon the writer. It starts with the writer. Yeah. And that's why we're probably very well paid as writers. But it's a very scary occupation. Sure. You yeah. know, you're only as hot as your next hit, as they used to say to me in the record business. And it's almost out of your control. Like when you're performing live, at least you know you're in charge of producing the show. It's, it's whether people leave being satisfied and happy that's all up to you yeah um and you can write great songs but it, after that's done it's kind of out of your hands you know it's got to get to the right person they got to do the right job and it the record company's got to promote it correctly it, i mean all those things have to be <laughs> you know uh done correctly and it's exactly. all out of your hands all the pieces have to fall yeah in the right hole it's like playing a jigsaw puzzle yeah I call it musically, I call it uh, musical uh, Sudoku. You've got to fit all those parts in together. As I've gotten, I'm not overly religious and, and haven't been since I left as a choir boy in church when I was about 16 years of age. But I've come so, very strongly to believe in, in another power or at least the, the path. There, there, there is something there that um, I think we have to stay on our path Otherwise, we get into trouble. Yeah. Um, again, I'm not overly religious, but I certainly believe there's something else to this life because so many things have fallen into place, particularly with, lest we forget where poppies grow, which is, I find, very spooky. It's all the things that happened in it, you know, and yeah. that brought me out of retirement of songwriting after four years. So let's talk about that. You had... You had a lady from Fredericton, uh, yeah. New Brunswick, uh, come see the show. Was that when we were out on tour last year? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. So she wrote to you and and maybe, you know, fill in that rest of that well, story. Well, it was a, the evening of November 6th. We played in that lovely little playhouse in Fredericton. Yeah. One of my favorite theaters. It's been one of my favorite 
audiences. We we don't sell out all the time, but we've got a very strong following there. And on November the 6th, she attended the concert. Uh, I I didn't know her. I didn't meet her. I got an email um, probably after uh, Remembrance Day, probably around the 1st of December. I got an email from her. And I was reading it, and it said, uh, I was at the concert. I'm sorry I couldn't meet you. I'm a nurse, and I was on duty that night, and I had to leave instantly after the concert to get to the hospital to work. But she said the family uh, had always been in the Canadian military, and uh, one of her favorite poems was In Flanders Fields, written Mm -hmm. by John McRae and uh, a doctor. And um, she said, there's a lot of music written to the poem, and she said, I, I couldn't help but feel while I was listening to you talk about composition of music and listening to your very simple melodies that are, seem so strong that perhaps you would try writing new music to the poem in Flanders Fields. Mm-hmm. That was it. There was, And I thought, wow, you know, this is... First of all, it was a great compliment because she would put me in the same realm as Dr. McRae and this famous poet and this yeah. poem that is universal. And I thought, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is uh, getting a little bit beyond my maybe. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, let's see what he's all about. So I started Googling Dr. McRae and found out there were some very strange co- coincidences that he and I shared. Uh, the first one was that... Uh, he had been educated in McGill University Medical School, where I went into. Wow. He passed, I failed. <laughs> yeah. Then I went into music. He, he was also on duty in the hospital as a practicing physician in the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal, where my father passed away about 40 years later. Mm-hmm. And he was also uh, a practicing physician for eight years. This wasn't just a passing fancy. At the University of Vermont Medical Hospital, where my doctor is and where I go for treatment now because we live in Vermont. Yeah. And then I got over that one and I started looking at the poem closely in Flanders Fields. It's written in a rondo style, which is very complex. Um, the first verse, I believe, have, believe, has seven lines to it. The second verse has five and the third has nine. And it's sort of a very challenging form to write poetry to. Mm -hmm. It's not A, B, A, B, A, B. It's A, A, B, C. And then it changes because each verse is different from the first one. That was the first thing I noticed. I thought, well, how do I put that into music with these changes? And then the second thing I I thought, the lyric, the lyric in the third verse, among other things, says, the torch be yours to hold it high. And I thought, where have I seen that before? This is pretty strong stuff now. I'm starting to get a little tingling in the back of my neck, and I realized that those lines were the last lines I uttered in my high school years in 1959 when I gave my valedictory speech. Wow. I was the valedictorian then in 1959 at Mount Royal High School, and the high school motto was the torch, and then it was in Latin, tuum tolere in, in, in altum, uh, be yours to hold it high. And I thought, well, you know, somebody's telling me something. I, I, I think I better write this anyway, I, even if it's just because for whatever reason there's too much coincidence here. And I, I automatically admired Dr. McRae so much because of the 
I guess the the way his life and I, my life had crossed. Sure. I find the human situation fascinating because we've only been on the planet for a, a, the twinkling of an eye in terms of uh, evolution yeah. and the planet's life itself. And I'm thinking, you know, is this, this is coincidental. Uh, McRae died in 1918 of pneumonia, not of the war. Um, this song, if I were going to produce it, was going to come out in 1918, uh, 2018, which is the 100th anniversary of the end of the first war. Yeah. And it just goes on and on. And, and uh, so all of that being considered, I, I really put an effort into writing it. And three, years la- three, three days later, sometime in mid, mid-December, I think it was, I came up with the solution to the rondo form musically. Mm-hmm. And it was to take whatever lines he had used to rhyme and simply write new music to the lines that he'd added on. In other words, there's seven in the first verse, five in the second, and nine in the third, which means they're each in common. (laughs) The first verse five is also in the second verse, but it's five, (laughs) but it's actually seven in the first verse, and then nine, so it has five, but four more. And so I just added on those extra lines, and I sneakily repeated the last line of the last verse. Mm-hmm. So that meant that I only had to come up with a new one new two new lines to solve that problem because I repeated the last one. Sure. So there we are with a complex mathematical situation. Uh, a lady who's suggested that I write music to a poem that I'm beginning to think is way above my talent. Uh, it's an honor. Uh, her grandfather was operated on by John McRae. Wow. In 1915, in the war, uh, on the battlefield, took shrapnel out of his knees. And so I felt an obligation to Joanne and her family to do this. The biggest motive, however, for doing that song was really that I realized I'm now 76 years of age, and I had more or less forgotten about the First World War. Mm-hmm. Not forgotten it, it's still there by poppies, you know, on poppy day. And But really, we, we should be more conscientious about it. We're, we're very conscientious about recent war. Sure. You know, perhaps even the Second World War, yeah. which ended in 45, but um, during which I was born. But I really felt a close relationship with Dr. McRae, despite the hundred years difference between us. Um, of course, I was born in 42, he died in 18, so we didn't have that far apart yeah. to, to go on, but I was really convinced that if I'm gonna do this, it has to be done in, in the spirit of the poem. It's not what I wanna do with it. I've gotta hold on to that wonderful spirit he evokes of passing the torch from one generation to the next. Yeah. And as such, I, I, I prayed, I've done, and people seem to think they love it, and that's great, you know, it's doing very well as a song. My ambition, I guess, is to have it played perhaps uh, on Armistice Day in Ottawa at some time, which probably will be, but I don't know. So you went into the studio and, uh, and got it. Um, July 11th. Yeah. And the funny thing happened was that I, I came up with this melody, and I recorded I have a funny little synthesizer up down in Nassau, which I... 
I used to just fiddle around on when I'm down there. If it's raining or something and I can't go out, which very seldom, yeah. uh, I'll go up and play a few tunes or, or just you know put the earphones on and play away and yeah. come up with a new melody or something. Uh, that's just part of the gig. And uh, I did that, and I thought, well, this thing is intriguing. As it happened, my dear friend Hayward Parrott, who I'd done recordings with now for over 30 years, was coming down with his wife to spend some time in uh, one of the big hotels of for whom she works. I think it's Hilton. Um, anyway, they came down to spend a few days in the new Bahamar Hotel in the Bahamas yeah. as a guest of the company and to, to make some comments, I guess. And while they were there, I suggested when they're done to come and spend a few days with us because we're such close friends and we get along well. And they did that. And, and I told them, I said, I've got something I want you to hear. I'm curious about your opinion about it. Yeah. So I played the track and read the poem to them. Well, they're both in tears when it ended. And I thought, is this good or is this bad, you know? <laughs> but it was obviously so emotional, which is what I was trying to catch. Sure. Because the poem is so emotional. And Hayward said, it's beautiful. We have to record it, and I want to produce it. Well, there was another thing that had gone on in my life. I always believe in hiring people who can do a job better than I can. Mm -hmm. Hence, I've never had problem hiring violinists because I couldn't play a violin if I had to. And Hayward was the producer I've always been looking for. I've produced a lot of albums in my life, but I guess it had been since Rita, maybe five or six years since I'd recorded. Yeah. And here was the guy saying, I love it, I want to record it, let me produce it, please. I said, Hayward, run with it because I'm getting too old for this stuff. <laughs> So all I did really was, was write the song. Yeah. And, and in, in concert, I'd play live piano against, a, as you know, a minus one track. And uh, it seems to go over well, and I enjoy playing it. But really, the only thing I did about that song was write it. it it's a great song. I, I think, you know, make sure that everyone listening is, uh, you know, try to find that. It's probably, uh, uh, is it on your website? Or is it, what's the if it isn't, it yeah. should be very soon. Yeah, yeah, and it will be a download soon. I don't know how that works either, but uh, yeah, Universal are, are going to release it. Um, yeah, it's beautiful, and you can see the reaction uh, when you do it live, yeah. and yeah. and people really uh, yeah. gravitate. And I, I think it's it, it's a song that doesn't have to be just played, you know, in November, right? Or it can be. Yeah, um, it's a song year round for sure because there's you can you can take a lot from it and I think everyone who listens to it there's something there for everybody and that you know, everyone's going to have a different uh, feel, feeling on it you know it's certain certainly a song that pulls the heartstrings so um, it, really well done thank you yeah the poem of course elicits an emotion that's worldwide it's universal yeah the pain of war and that's what we forget I think uh, nobody likes war and uh, if I added to the rejuvenation of that spirit for all wars uh, by allowing music to uh, be the basis for popularity, which I, I hope it will, um, then I've accomplished everything I wanted to do with it. Yeah. So from here on, where do you see Frank Mills and next five years from now is it uh, 
you're kicking back enjoying life a lot i know that and uh um <laughs> i've always enjoyed yeah life. <laughs> uh, and obviously if uh touring is still happening and coming out of retirement every once in a while and uh, i can tell from uh these last few shows that i've been at uh you zip over to the merch table during intermission and people are very passionate about uh seeing you and and uh the fans coming to the shows are uh, they're just taking this lady in front of me last night she could not stop bouncing her head back and forth she was in, engaged in every single story and and uh, and which is neat about the crowds there's everybody there as you know there was there were four-year-olds there last night there's yep. 10 year olds there were 30 year olds and there were 80 year olds mm-hmm. and it's pretty neat, uh, you know, it must be for you especially to see that wide range and the generations of people coming out. And you see, I saw at the very end, it was packing up and there was a grandmother, um, a mom and a granddaughter yep. all there. They all came together. Sure. And that was really cool. That, that must feel really great. It does. I mean, yeah. it, it, narrow casting as it has been, if that's the right word, um, the audience has transcended all all, all ages. It, yeah, it's that doesn't seem to be a factor. And uh, something interesting about the latest CD, which is really a compilation of songs that I wrote, that uh, were recorded by different people, all all at my request, actually. And uh, the comment about that too is that. Uh, Gosh, I haven't heard that song before, but it's so typically Frank Mills. I really enjoy it. There are a lot of pieces on that album that people have not heard before because they were parts of different albums and different projects. But that that bond of so many young people and, uh, you know, selling piano books, which have 63 of my pieces in them, um, probably there could be 220 pieces for piano that I've written, another three or 400 that I threw in the garbage, but... 63-piece songbook still is one of our best sellers. Yeah. And that's a hell of a compliment to me. I, I, I sit back and laugh about it. I mean, th- th- these tours are not getting any easier. Um, you know, air travel is not getting easier. You wait longer and you fly less. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's all part of the game. Um, pianos are getting scarce now. We have to find them. <laughs> yeah, and it's really yeah. hard to find good pianos. Yeah, yeah. It's hit and miss. You might... Yeah. You might have one in a tour that's stellar, um, yeah. and the rest are just, you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. yeah, they just don't have the need for them anymore. They just don't keep them up, or um, it's it's sad. And there's, you know, obviously so many people just coming with their electric piano and sure. touring that way. Yeah. Um, I guess that's always a possibility, but when you're flying and, and you know, when you're on a big tour, that's you know you can you can do that and carry your shell like you used to do and, exactly. Um, but that's you know it's a harder. But when you get a great piano like we did the other night, yeah, in, uh, yeah. In medicine hat, right? Uh, it it really is is something you know, and it, I think probably this really makes you as a player um, just give that much more because it's it's not on you're enjoying the instrument so much it's not on your mind going oh okay this is tough to get through hard work yeah 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 yeah. well there are two types of pianos 
they're happy pianos and they're not happy pianos. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're all a varying degree of both. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what it is that when I find a piano that just sings, you know, it, it's like finding a human. It's like hearing a new voice on the air. This gal can really sing, you sure. know. I always remember thinking, Lady Gaga, what a dumb name that is for a person who can sing so well, which she does. She's yeah. a great singer. And uh, that surprised me. But but likewise, it, it just uh, it surprises me that um, that we're where we were at, I guess, in touring. And, uh, and that the audiences are so strong and that the show is so strong and that my songs are so much appreciated by people. That's where it's all at, you know. Yeah. No, it's great. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap this up. Uh, I know we're probably both getting it's it's uh, Thanksgiving Monday, and we're going to try to find some turkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try and find <laughs> and a turkey Alberta. in Alberta. Yeah. Exactly. I think we get better chance of finding a cow. But <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been this has been great. Uh, I just want to say I've you know the last few years been able to work uh, with you and and doing some of these tours yeah. have been a real pleasure. Um, and as much fun as it is. Uh, being able to see the show night after night i enjoy the the rides to the next gig as much as anything because the stories and and, <laughs> yeah. and and hearing about your life and the different things yeah. you you talk about and you have wonderful stories um it's just as much fun for me than anything else so i appreciate uh having you uh uh accept me out on the road and and uh, it's been fun it's been great doing this podcast um i i want to make sure that people check out uh, uh frank mills wherever you can if you see frank coming to your town make sure you you buy a ticket because it's well worth the money and i think you'd really really enjoy it um and frankmills.com and you can find out information on frank and he's on uh you're on facebook too right yes yeah all those good things yeah and uh make sure you reach out and say hello and uh i hope everyone enjoyed this podcast and once again thanks frank for uh for being here and uh, looking forward to the next couple shows. And uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. Darren, it's always a pleasure for me. Uh, I, I've been lucky enough to be associated with so many people who are not just ending up as announcers, interviewers, whatever, but become friends. And I consider you part of that. And it's really fun to answer your questions because you know just as so much about the business as I do. And we're both creative in it. And it's a delight for me to, to chat with you and, and to be with you uh, and have you on our tours because uh, of that friendship and that understanding that, that goes beyond most people's comprehension. You know, music is a, is a, is a, it's not a simple art. No. So those questions that you ask were I, d delightful to answer them. Excellent. Well, yeah, I appreciate delighted. it. Delighted. Well, let's go get some dinner. And Bingo. thanks again. We'll say goodbye to everybody. Yeah, goodbye, folks. Bye.